Okay. In the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. I want to just pause for a second on the first letter, the letter Bet. Why does the Torah start with a Bet? I'll give you three quick answers. One, from the Jerusalem Talmud, Bet is a word that also starts the word Bracha, which means blessing. So we start with a base with a B for blessing. The Aleph, on the other hand, is the word for Arur, which is the opposite of blessing. So this is why the Jerusalem Talmud says we start with a Bet and not with an Aleph. That answer is difficult to understand because certainly we can find lots of good words to start with an Aleph, like God's name or Anochi, first word of the Ten Commandments. And we can find some unpleasant words to start with a Bet, like Bigida, which means rebellion. So that answer requires more study for our research department. We'll be looking into that. The second explanation comes from the Midrash. The Midrash says that the bet, if you look at the shape of the bet, it's like a backward C. So it's closed on three sides and open on, 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 the, on the left. Now, if, we, if we're standing at, in front of a Torah scroll and we look at the top of the Torah scroll as east, the left is going to be north. So this is alluding to the fact that the Midrash says that the, God did not create the world in a perfect state. He left the north side open. What exactly that means? It's a good question. In any case, it's a, the lesson of it, though, is if anybody will say they are, will claim to be a master of the universe, we can say to them, if you're the master, a master of the universe, if you're a God, then let's see if you can close off the north side. Let's see if you could fix the things that the world needs fixing. That's the second explanation. The third explanation comes from the Kabbalah, from Kabbalistic sources, which says that the Torah that we have is the Torah 2.0. What do I mean by 2.0? It's, it's the Torah as it has been worded and as it has been conveyed and distilled in a manner that us human beings with a, the with a human mind can comprehend it. And Torah 1.0 is the Torah as it exists in heaven. The Torah that the angels study, the Torah as it exists from, from God's per perspective. And so what, what, by starting the Torah that we are going to read with the letter Bet, that is telling us this is not the Torah that is in the, it, it is the same, I have to say this carefully, it's the same Torah, but it's the Torah as it has been uh, distilled and contracted to a, to a way in a way that we can comprehend it. And we have to always keep, keep in mind that there's an Aleph of the Torah, there's an, the, the essence of the Torah that transcends what we can perceive. And sometimes we get glimpses of it in the Kabbalistic explanations, in the, in the um, Midrashic explanations, but we come with the, with the approach that the Torah is inherently beyond our world. It comes from a different world. This is a, a otherworldly thing that has come into our world. And that's what the letter bet signifies according to this Kabbalistic interpretation. Now let's look at Rashi, right? Rashi says, why does the Torah begin with the story of the creation? It should start with the first mitzvah. What's the first mitzvah? The first mitzvah is, was given, is given in, in uh, Parsha's bow in towards the beginning of Exodus, where God tells the Jewish people about the mitzvah of, of counting time, of, of uh, establishing the months how to look up at the moon and say, this is going to be Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month. So why don't we start with that, start with a mitzvah, get right to the, the, the heart of it, which is Torah as a book of instruction. 
And then, of course, as some of the commentators say, Rashi doesn't mean to say that we would never get around to explaining the story of creation and the, our forefathers and so forth, but start with that and maybe then maybe start with the mitzvah and then go back to the history. As Rashi puts it, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak said, the Torah should have begun with HaChodesh HaZelechem. This is the month for you, which is the first mitzvah that the Jewish people were commanded. Why do we start with Bereshis? Says Rashi, because it says in the Psalms, Psalm 111, the strength of his deeds, of God's deeds, God tells to his people. That with this verse, this story of creation, God is telling the Jewish people, his people, the strength of his deeds to give to them the inheritance of nations. What does it mean? Rashi says, if the nations of the world will come and say, Jews, Israelites, you are thieves, you're robbers, listimatem. Why have you, you conquered the, na- the lands of the seven nations? It came, it came out of Egypt. You hang out in the desert for 40 years. Then you come into this land of Canaan and you take over the land of the, of the seven nations. You're, you're thieves. So what do we say to them? We say all of the earth belongs to God. He created it and he gave it to whoever it seemed fit in his eyes. And is with by his will, by God's will, that he gave this land to them, to the nations that were there. And it's by his will that he took it from them and gave it to us. So this is a very interesting way to start the Torah. And the Rebbe talks about it and says that what, what is this claim of the nations? It's a very unusual claim because especially going back thousands of years, the, the idea of coming in and conquering a land was normal. I mean, that's what you did. Whoever conquers the land, it's their land. That's the way things were and still are in, in many ways. So especially from the, from the perspective of the nations, why are they telling the Jewish people that they're thieves? They're just doing what everybody else did. And the Canaanites, they weren't the first ones there. They also conquered that from others. So um, the Rebbe explains that really what they're saying is more of a spiritual argument. And what they're saying is the Jewish people, you are a spiritual people. You don't need a land. In fact, this is interesting because you have Jews who say that too, even to this day. What do you need a land for? You're a spiritual people. You don't need a physical land. And so the very first uh, Rashi in the very first verse tells us kind of the mandate of the Jewish people, which is, yes, we are a spiritual people, but we're a spiritual people in the midst of the land within, within the world. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, story is of a, of, a, of, a, of a rabbi named Rabbi Shmuel, the Rebbe Maharash. And when the Rebbe Marash was young, he hid the fact that he was a great Kabbalist and tzaddik. But there was one chassid who had a very deep question in Kabbalah, and he came and he asked all of the, all of the Rebbe Marash's brothers, who were well known to be great scholars, nobody could explain to him this, this um, interpretation of the Eitz Chaim, this great Kabbalistic work. And he sees, he's walking by Rabbi Shmuel's uh, house at night, late at night, he sees the lights are on. And he knocks and he sees that he's studying Kabbalah and he knocks on the door. And a few minutes later, the Rabbi Marash opens the door and he says, I have a question for you in Kabbalah. And the rabbi says, me, Kabbalah? I don't know Kabbalah. I'm, I'm ignorant. So he says, you know, I, I know I saw you were studying. And a long story short, he agrees to talk to him about Kabbalah. And he explained throughout the night, he explaining this deep concept. And they're drinking tea throughout the night. They're, they're having cups and cups of tea as they're talking. And at the end of the night, Rabbi Shmuel turns to this chassid, Rabbi Shmuel Ber Barisavar, and he says, how many cups of tea did we have tonight? 
And he, the, the chassid looks at me and says, cups of tea? How would I know how many cups of tea? I mean, we've been studying the deepest things of Kabbalah. Last thing I'm thinking about is how many cups of tea? So Rabbi Shmuel told him, this is a lesson I want to teach you. You may be studying the deepest concepts and loftiest ideas of the sublime Kabbalah, but you need to be aware of where you are in this physical world. You need to know how many cups of tea you drank. And he proceeded to tell him how many cups had drunk, they had drunk. And so this, right from the beginning of the, of the Torah, they, the Torah is telling, yes, we are a spiritual people, but we are connected to the land. We have mitzvahs that are connected to the land. We need to know how many cups of tea we are drinking because our job is to transform the physical world, to be transcendent people within the physical world. Next Rashi, Rashi says, is bara. Now Rashi's going to come at this grammatically. He says, the word Bereshis, we have a big problem with because Bereshis, which typically you translate as in the beginning, really means in the beginning of. In the beginning of. But there is no what in this verse. It doesn't say in the beginning of creation or in the beginning of time. It just says in the beginning of God created. So there's a missing word. In the beginning of God created. In the beginning of what? So Farashi's first interpretation is that the Torah uses a strange uh, formulation to hint to us that this word Bereshis doesn't just mean in the beginning, but it means something else as well. And what is that? And by the way, I just want to say that Rashi uses this expression. I'll read it to you from the English here. It says, um, this verse calls for a midra- midrashic interpretation. In the English, it's not as poetic. The Hebrew says, this verse says, darsheni, expound me. It's like the verse itself is yelling at you and saying, you need to expound this verse. You can't just read it at its very literal level because otherwise you're going to have an issue as we, as we just described. So the verse itself is telling you, it has its, its, it has its primary um, statement, which is in the beginning, this is what happened. But it's in the way it's formulated, it's formulated in such a way that it tells you there's more going on beneath the surface. You need to dig a little bit. And so the, what the Midrash tells us is that Bereshis also means, you have to look at the word, Bereshis, for the why did God create the world? Okay, so in this first word is hinting the purpose of creation. And that is Bez Bishvil Reishis for, so bit, you say in the beginning, the Bez is in, but here Rashi is saying bit could also mean for. For what purpose? For Reishis. And there are two things that are called Reishis, the beginning, the Torah and the Jewish people. The Torah is called Reishis, the beginning of God's way in Proverbs. And the Jewish people are called Reishis, the beginning of his of his tevuah, of his, of his grain, first of his grain. And so it's for, for the purpose of the Torah and the purpose of the Jewish people fulfilling the Torah and being a light unto the nations that the world is created. This is the very purpose of creation. Rashi then gives a, a, another interpretation, which is according to the Pshat. And he says, the way we're supposed to understand it is in the beginning of God's creating of heaven and earth, the earth was astonishingly empty. In other words, we don't read the first verse as a full sentence. We read it as the beginning of a sentence. In the beginning of God's creating heaven and earth, verse 2 and verse 3, you need to read that together. Um, as opposed to other commentators that would just interpret it, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which would be in the beginning of time. Because as Rashi tells us, in the beginning would be barishonah, not bereshis. 
Rashi, second, uh, third Rashi here. Rashi says, Bar Elohim. We notice that the name of God that is used here is the name Elohim, which is the which is the divine attribute of judgment, as opposed to Yudke Vavke, which is divine attribute of mercy. And why is, does it say that God create that Elohim creates the world? Furthermore, um, in later in chapter two, it's going to say that Hashem Elohim created heaven and earth. The Lord God Havaya Elohim. So it does use both names of God in chapter two, and it uses the name of mercy first. So what's going on over here? So Rashi tells us, it doesn't say Bara Hashem, why? Because first God was intending to create, or, or it went up in God's thought to create the world with the attribute of judgment. But he saw that the world could not exist with, with strict judgment. Therefore, he proceeds it with the attribute of mercy, Rachamim, and he combines that with the attribute of judgment. And that's why it says in chapter two, when Hashem Elohim created heaven and earth, uh, earth and heaven. Whereas this verse is talking about the initial thought of God, the initial um, way that God thinks this is how the world should be created. That's what's being described in this verse. Verse two, of course, the research department will have to look into why would God first want to create the, the earth with strict judgment? Why not go straight to, to mercy? Why is that the second thought? Good question. Base. But audit says to say, the earth was astonishingly empty and there was darkness upon the face of the tahom of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Verse 3, the Midrash, by the way, says that this expression, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, says this is the spirit of Mashiach, and in, 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 which, is, which tells us that right from the beginning of creation, the purpose of creation is for the times of Mashiach. Verse 3, God says, let there be light. By Yehoyed and there was light. So really the first creation is light. This is the first day, creation of light. God sees that the light is good. God separates between the light and the darkness. Rashi says, here too, we need the words of Agadah. We cannot understand the verse without its Midrashic interpretation. What does this mean? God saw that the, that the light was good and he separated it? What does one thing have to do with the other? Rashi explains from the Midrash, God saw that the light that he had created the wicked are not deserving to use this light. This is a very spiritual, pure, pristine light. And so therefore God separates this light and, and reserves it for the tzaddikim, for the righteous in the future. And what's left is more of a utilitarian light. So you're able to see, but the spiritual light, as the Midrash elaborates, the light of clarity, of, of beauty, of, of heavenly beauty that was present in the world when God first creates his light, that was taken away and is being held on to until the times of Mashiach and when, when it will be revealed. Now, the Midrash does say we have little glimpses of that light. We have that glimpses of that light when we study Torah. The light is, is, is in the Torah. Uh, we have glimpses of that light in the candles or the flames of the menorah on Hanukkah and so forth. 
but the the um, but the light itself, the primary presence of that light, is not, and that creates the challenge that we have in this world, which is that we don't see the things clearly, and there's a struggle, and and um, the challenge that we have is a result of the removal of that light. On the other hand, we have these glimpses of the light to give us the strength to succeed in our battles, spiritual battles. Simple explanation, however, Rashi says, is that he saw that the light was good and it's not good for it to be mixed together with the darkness. And therefore he, he established different times for the, different, uh, for, the, for the light and darkness, light by day and darkness at night. It's interesting. Uh, the Midrash says that the day, the daylight or the sun is corresponding to the written Torah and darkness or night corresponds to the oral Torah, to the, um, the Torah Shabbat Peh, which was passed down generation to generation verbally versus being written down like scripture, the Bible, etc. So, um, and the Midrash further says that when Moshe was up on Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, how did he know when it was day and how did he know when it was night? Now you may ask, what's the difference? Why would he care? But the Midrash, Midrash talks about it, so I'm not sure why. And the Midrash says that when God was teaching him the written Torah, he knew that it was day. And when God was teaching him the oral Torah, he knew that it was night. Verse 5, God called, Elohim called the day, the light day, and for the darkness he called it night. And it was evening, and it was morning, Yom Echad, day one. Now, Rashi points out that if you look at the other days, the other six days, it's going to say there was evening and it was morning, day two, right? Day, the third day, the fourth day, right? So it should say, you would think, Yom Rishon. For this verse, it should say it was evening and it was morning, Yom Rishon, the first day, just like it's going to say second, third, fourth. So why does it say one day? And it was one day, Yom Echad. So Rashi explains... Because on that day, it was Yom Echad, not the first day of creation. It was the day of oneness. Like we say, it was a day of oneness. Why? Because God was alone in the world. The angels were not created until the next day. Next day, God already had company. He had the angels. But on that day, the oneness of God is... Um, is all that there is all that there is, and this is how it's explained in Bereshit Rabbah. said, "Let there be an expanse in the midst of the water. Let it be a separation between water and water." Rashi says, "Let this expanse be strengthened. For although the heavens were created on the first day, they were still moist, and they solidified on the second day." From the rebuke of the Holy One, blessed be He. This is what Scripture says: the pillars of the heavens trembled the entire first day, and on the second day, the pillars of the heavens were trembling; they weren't secure, and they were astonished by His rebuke, like a person who stands in astonishment because of the rebuke, one who frightens him. So, on this day, God strengthens this expanse in the middle of the water. This is from Targum. For there is a separation between the upper waters and the expanse, as there is between the expanse and the waters that are on the earth. Behold, you have learned they are suspended by the word of the king. 
verse seven, and God made the expanse and it separated between the water that was below the expanse and the water that was above the expanse. And it was so. Now, Rashi points out that if we look at the first day, it says God saw the light and it was good. And verse four, but if we look at the second day, we don't find any expression of, and it was good. So what does Rashi say? And we'll find it on the other days as well. Why don't we have it on the second day? Because the work of the water was not finished until the third day, but he started on the second day. And something that is not complete is not is not uh, at its state of goodness, right? You can't say it is good when it's in the middle of the job. On the third day that the water was complete and he had begun another, another thing on the third day and finished it, it therefore says, it was good twice on the third day. And therefore, it becomes known as Tuesday becomes known as Yom Shehuchbal Bo Kitov, a day that Kitov was said twice about. It's a special, special day. Why does it say it twice on the third day? Once, because the second day's work was completed, and the second time for the work of the third day. God calls the Rakia Shemayim, God calls this expanse heaven, and it's evening and it's morning, a second day. Rashi tells us, where do we get? What does this word Shamayim mean? Etymology. Why are the heavens called Shamayim? Rashi says it's a contraction of two words. Aish, which is fire, and Mayim, which is water. So the heavens is made of fire and water, or gas and agua. This is what the heavens are made of. Or spiritually, talk about fire is Gevura, strength, and Mayim is Chesed. Kindness. Verse 9, God said, let the water that is beneath the heavens gather into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So this is a blessing we say every single morning when we wake up. We go through all the gifts that we that we recognize, that we're able to see, that we're able to uh, stand up, sit up, um, that we, we're, we're refreshed. And one of the things we say um, that God provides earth up upon the land, that there's somewhere for us to walk. When we get out of bed, we don't have to hop into a boat. We're able to walk on the land. This is because of the third day of creation uh, when God, the world was completely covered with water and God says, let there be dry land. God calls the dry land land edits. And to the gathering of water, he called Yamim, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, now God says, still on the same day, as we learned, two things happen on this day. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, seed yielding herbs and fruit trees producing fruit according to its kind in which its seed is found on the earth. Rashi points out that this word here, eitz peri, how do they translate eitz peri? Fruit trees, fruit trees, okay? Eitz peri, producing fruit according to its kind. Rashi, however, says eitz peri, a tree 
fruit, Rashi says that God wanted that the taste of the tree would be the same as the taste of the fruit. It sounds like a kind of a Willy Wonka situation here where you could actually eat the tree. But the trees, they said, you know what? We're not going to do it that way. It's a great idea, creator, dear creator, but we're not doing that. They rebelled. What did they do? So when, when it talks about what God wanted, it says, let there be eights pri. So there's no division between the, the tree and the pri, which is the fruit. Eights is tree, pri is fruit. But when it says what actually happened, what the earth did in response to God's um, command or statement, it says eights osepri, a tree that produces or makes fruits. It doesn't say eights pri. What does that mean? Veloiha eights pri. The eights itself is not a pri. The tree itself is not a fruit which is what God wanted. So we don't find that the tree was punished right away for disobeying. But when Adam was, was punished for his sin, so the earth was also punished for its, for its iniquity. Now, why did the tree not listen to God? Anybody know? Why did the why did the earth not listen to God and not create the Willy Wonka tree? So you know sometimes you have the argument between the uh, the writer and the producer. It happens. So what I recall is that the the earth reasoned that if a tree would be edible, it would be eaten, and then it would it would be gone. So it was a, it was self preservation. That it said, you know what, why don't we keep the tree inedible so that it will survive? So this is also a good, good question for our research department to look into is, you know, why did God initially want it to be one way and it ended up being another way? And, and also it seems kind of odd that, you know, the, that the earth has, its, has freedom of choice. I mean, we know that we have freedom of choice. So obviously there's something deep going on over here. Couldn't God, didn't God have veto power? I mean, to say, hey. I said something. So these are all great questions. Um, let's see this uh, verse 12. The earth gave forth vegetation, seedling herbs according to its, according to its kind, and trees producing fruit in which its seed is found according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. According to its kind. We don't find that God commanded them to, to give forth according to its kind. That was not said regarding the herbs when they were commanded to grow. They heard that the trees were commanded thus, and they applied a kalvachomer to themselves, as explained in Agadah, that if the trees have to be according to their kind, certainly we need to be according to our kind as well. And this was um, evening and morning, and it was a third day. Let's do one more day before we open it up to questions and or comments. On the fourth day, God said, let there be luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to separate between the day and between the night. And they will be also for signs and for appointed seasons and for days and for years. Ooh, this is a lot going on here. We've got signs. We've got appointed seasons. We've got days and we have years. I hope Rashi, I think Rashi will let us in on what's going on over here. 
First of all, Rashi says, Miyom Rishonivro, that really the luminaries, we're talking about the sun and the moon, stars, uh, perhaps they are already created on the first day, but it's on the fourth day that God commands them to install themselves in the sky. Rashi tells us everything was really created, the heavens and the earth, all the creation were already created on the first day. Each one was fixed in its proper place on its day. And that's why we go back to the first verse that we learned today. It says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. What does it say? It doesn't say, it says, es. Hashemayim, the S, so that those two S's include their products, the products of the earth and the products of heaven, that all of this was created on the first day. Um, let's look at this Rashi here to separate between day and night. Once the light of the first day of creation was taken away, then you have this idea of separation between day and night, that it's light by day and dark at night. But during the seven days of creation, another reading has three days of creation, the light and the darkness served together both by, between, by, by night and day. This is a very difficult thing to understand how exactly that would work. And we'll have to look into that. They shall be for signs. Well, how are the luminaries signs? Says Rashi, when the luminaries are eclipsed, it's an unfavorable omen for the world. But when you perform the will of the Holy One, you need not fear. So when there's an eclipse, I think in, in the Gemara talks about, depends on if there's an eclipse of the sun or eclipse of the moon, there's, there's differences there. But either way, an eclipse is not a good sign even though everybody rushes to go and see it, not a good sign. But if you are in, if you are in line with God's will, if you're living at, at that, at that uh, level, then you don't have to fear um, these, these eclipses. Now, what does it mean, ulamo'adim, for appointed seasons? Al shame ha'asid, this refers to the future, when the Israelites are destined to be commanded concerning the festival. So mo'ed is a festival. Mo'adim l'simcha. So the Torah is already talking about the future, the mitzvahs that the Jewish people are going to fulfill, that the sun and the moon help us with that. But Rashi only actually mentions the, the molad halavana, the birth of the new, the new moon, first phase of the moon, that we, based on when the moon is, appears, we have the first day of the month, and the holidays, the festivals, start on a certain day of the month. So yes, the, the moon is going to be for the... For the um, purpose of Moadim, of festivals. Uli Amim, the truth is it, also, it is also the sun because it has to be in a certain season. It has to be in, you know, Pesach has to be in the in the spring. So it does follow the sun as well. But Rashi does not mention that. It just mentions the moon as having an influence on the appointed season. Uli Yamim, So for days, what does it mean for days? The sun gets half a day and the moon gets the other half. So they get a complete day with the sun and the moon. What about years? After 365 days, they complete the revolution through the 12 constellations which serve them, and that constitutes a year. Verse 15, there should be luminaries in the heaven to shine upon the land. So it was. 
God made the two great luminaries, the great luminary that, that rules by day, the sun, and the lesser, the lesser luminary, the moon, to rule by night, and the stars. Now here we have a very famous Midrash that initially, right, initially, you know, because here's the here's the here's the, uh, the conflict in the verse. Here's the contradiction. It starts off calling them both Meorot Hagdolim, the great luminaries. Gedol means great, but then it talks about a great Maor Gadol, the great Maor, and then the Maor Akaton, the lesser, the smaller uh, luminary. So the beginning seems to sound like they're both great, and then the rest of the verse seems to say one was great and one was small. So that is an allusion to the Midrash, which says that initially the sun and the moon were both created equally. Shavim nivru. Venismata halavana, the moon was made smaller, was diminished. Why? Because it said, it came to God and said, we can't have two kings using one crown. This town ain't big enough for the both of us, said the moon. And God said, you are right. And you have to make yourself smaller so that there's a greater and a smaller and a, and a smaller. And by the way, this is uh, really about the, world, the, um, the entire nature of, of, of creation. There is a giver and receiver. We have this everywhere. We have that in relationships. We have that in, um, um, in how we relate to the other. There's always something that we can give, like the sun, and there's always something that we need to receive from others, just like the moon receives its light from the sun. It's called mashpia, the giver, and the makabal. And so in the, in, the, in the classic case is when we give charity to somebody who is poor. So in that case, we are the giver. We're like the sun. And the ani, the poor person, is like the levana, it's like the moon receiving. But the giver, in that context, he's a giver. But even in that context, he's also a receiver. Because you're receiving through that opportunity, receiving the mitzvah. But in other, in other parts of a person's life, he could be a, a, a recipient. And so this diminishing of the moon is really creating this whole dynamic of giving and receiving, which is so uh, integral to creation. And what does it say? That when Mashiach will come, the moon will be restored to its original glory. In other words, so this whole process of the, the creating the world. Okay, so, he, so here's a very, on one foot, um, a deep Hasidic idea, which is that the question is, why did God initially create the sun and the moon equally and then have the moon diminished? If the moon was right about that you can only have one, um, one king, then why didn't God initially create the world that way? And the answer is that from God's perspective, from God's, from God's world, there could be two. Um, they, could be, they could both be great. You don't have to have this idea of giver and receiver. But from the perspective of the, from the receiver of us, of the world, it does require that dynamic. And that's why it describes the first as the two great me'orot, because that's from God's perspective. But then in practice, one of them has to be uh, diminished. But when Mashiach comes, when we'll, when we'll be elevated, in, in a sense, to, to God's perspective, we will no longer need this idea of the, the giver and the receiver um, and that's why we, whenever we do Kiddush Levana, we do the sanctification of the moon every month. We talk about this, this uh, Midrash that when Mashiach comes, the moon will be, will be restored. 
And, and of course, that goes along with everything that the moon represents. The moon represents the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are, are unlike the sun, which is constantly shining. The Jewish people have their ups and downs. And individually, we have our ups and downs. That's the nature of the exile, the nature of the, of the world that we're in. In the times of Mashiach, the moon is restored. And uh, God's light is constantly in a state of revelation to us. Just one last Rashi over here. The the stars, because God if uh, diminished the moon, he he um, he increased its host to appease it. The midrash gives a bunch of things. Rashi only cites one of them uh, of how God um, tried to appease the moon after God said the moon you have to be become smaller. The moon, quite uh, understandably, was not too happy. So God says, I have some things to to uh, appease you. You can have some ice. I'm going to give you ice cream. Going to take you to the pizza shop. Um, so Rashi cites one of them, which is God gives all these stars, this is the entourage of the moon. And when the moon comes out, the stars come out with it and they set with it. So this was part of the appeasing of the of the moon. One, it's interesting that Rashi chooses that from the Midrash because the Midrash also mentions the fact that the moon appears even during the day. Just yesterday, I was looking at it. You see the you'd see the moon during the day. And he said, oh, you know, you're going to be smaller, but at least, you know, the sun never comes out at night. Yeah, that never happens. But the moon, oh, we're going to let you shine even during the day. And the moon was not impressed with that. The moon said, um, you know, what's the point of, of, of shining during the day? It's like taking a candle out in the daylight. It's worthless. So it wasn't too impressed with that. Um, the other thing that God said, and then uh, according to the Medrash, to, to the moon, is that the Jewish people are going to set their holidays based on you. Now that was an impressive one. That's, I mean, that's that's choshev. That's that's very prestigious. But interesting that Rashi only chooses the one about the stars, and this is what this is what God God um, God did to appease. The moon. Uh, now I'm thinking of the answer. The answer is because that's the only one that's sort of hinted in the verse because it mentions these stars kind of at the end, rows in the stars. What are the stars? How do the stars fly in over here? And the Rashi is explaining why because that's part of the explaining what happened behind the scenes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been wonderful. I will pause now for questions and comments from our incredible audience. <laughs> So going back to the, the very, very, very beginning, um, you know, uh, it, it seems like there was already something, uh, you know, created uh, you know, was in the, in the beginning of the creating, uh, you know, God's presence hovered over the surface of waters that seemed to have already been there, right? So um, how long were, were they around? Uh, before all this creating got started. Right. So, yeah. So Rashi actually mentions that when he talks about how do we interpret voracious in the beginning, he says, this can't mean in the beginning of everything because there's already water in this description. Oh, okay. So that's already taken care of. Right. So, so Rashi, the Rashi from there derives, it doesn't really mean this is the very beginning of, um, so it, it, that's how Rashi interprets it in the beginning of creation, um, you know. And then he also explains later on. He says that everything, everything, 
is created on the first day and then put in its place during uh, on its on its particular day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and also, uh, if the the purpose of um, putting the creation account uh, first was to demonstrate that uh, the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people, why not uh, start the Torah with? Uh, um, you know, the, the end of the 40-year period in the desert when the Jewish people, you know, go into the land of Israel, and Hashem brought them into the land of Israel. So who could argue that uh, they had no right to, uh, to the land of Israel? That's a great point. I mean, you know, the question of the, of, the, of the nations is starting then, when the Jews go into the land of Israel, led in by God, that's when they claim the Jewish people are robbers, Right. And so you're raising a good point. Why not just say, well, the very fact that we got in here so miraculously and so clearly by the hand of God, isn't that isn't that a good enough proof to say that we're not robbers and this is by the hand of God? But I think that what 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 we're learning from the verse, the way Rashi puts it, is why it's not a thievery. You know, it's it's giving the the, the why the background behind it, saying God created the world. This never, the land never belonged to the people who were there, right? It's not like God is coming in and taking things away from, from God decides since it is God's world, God decides these people will be here for this time. Mm -hmm. And now it's the time for these people to be here. So it's giving kind of the background behind it, not just, well, he's God, so he can do what he wants. (laughs) Um, But that's a very good point. Um, You know, the fact that God himself brings, brings us in there, and, and, and it has its, its echo in modern day, the modern day when, um, you know, 1948, the Jewish people and the Zionist movement, um, uh, you know, established independence in, in the land of Israel. And they're attacked from all sides and miraculously they survive. And then again in 1967 and 1973 and so on. So I think there was something in, did you mention 1956 also? No, I missed the 1956. Thank you. The 1956. And so what you're saying is what you're saying about the initial entry into the land of Israel, which was clearly a godly divine mandated thing because it was so miraculous. We saw that again. We um, saw that again in, in our own time. A quick question about the uh, Rashi's explanation for the second day where it doesn't say, and it was good, is that the creation of that, object or subject didn't actually wasn't completed until the following day i had heard something else i don't know where i'm wondering if you heard the same thing i had heard that it second day because there was a separation that's what and separation hints at machlokas and that is not good mm-hmm. so that yeah. is why and i so i don't know where i heard that but i'm wondering does that also is yeah. that also valid yeah absolutely yes so so, um, right, it's the day that Machloket was created. That's 100, yeah, that's, that's the Midrash. The Midrash says that. Okay. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, I don't know if Rashi mentions it anywhere. Um, I'm reminded of Korach, Vayikach Korach, because that's the original, that's the original Machloket that we find in the Torah, at least, you know, the, the, it's the kind of the, paradigmatic machloket was Korach and there there's a connection also the second day but I'm, I'm forgetting the connection by Yikach Korach 
But yes, that is correct. The second day was a day of division. Now, you're reminding me that according to Hasidus, what you basically have and why the, the third day is Kitov is double is that on the first day, as Rashi says, you have Yom Echad. You just have oneness. There's no challenge to it. There's no confusion. There's no uh, concealment and so forth. You know, that original light of creation is shining. And the second day, as, as you say, Jonathan, Machloket is, is created. Division, which is arguments between people. But really, at the, at the deepest level, now there's two. What does that mean? Now there's a, the, the ability to say, well, is God the only thing? Or maybe there's other stuff going on as we have in our own life. What am I going to do today? Is it going to be a, a God day? Or is it going to be a day where I'm, I'm, I'm stuck, with, uh, stuck in other modalities that are not godly? Right? So we have choice. So, this, the, so this, the second day um, represents this, like, this division, not just amongst people of argumentation, but the root of all argument and all, and all discord, which is inner discord, the fact that there's now a challenge that you have to choose God, and um, it's a challenge. And then the third day, third day is three is always the, the number of um, you know, reconciliation and um, bringing together of opposites. And so the third day represents, that's why the, the uh, third day you have Kitov, double for it is good because... When you only have one, you only have one, it's a certain level of goodness. You have Kitov once, right? And it says Kitov on the first day. It's great. On the second day, we have the division. That's, that's difficult. That's not Kitov. But when it's third, when you have the presence of two, you have the division, but yet you choose the right thing, then you have Kitov twice. Then you have not just, not just sweet like honey, but, but sweeter. Misuki Midvash, even sweeter than honey, because it you had to get to it. You had to climb to the top of that mountain. You weren't just dropped off there by a drone. <laughs> you, uh, you, you climbed that mountain. That's a, that's a double level, level of, uh, of goodness. And it gives God nachas too. Gives God nachas. Gives Bobby nachas. Yeah. But, it gives yourself nachas. Rabbi... Um, but but there was an earlier separation on day one, you know, uh, uh, light was separated from darkness, and yet that was good. That's a very good question. So my first answer would be that we see Rashi says that that didn't actually happen till later, and that they were they were buvia. We saw we, we saw that Rashi had different versions. One said said seven days um we know that so that's a good question and, and it could be it could be that it's different types of separation but i think the simple explanation is that it didn't happen on that day but um i'll just share with you and then we'll, we'll close it out is that we have we're, we're going to be tomorrow night we're going to do havdalah and we're going to light the havdalah candle why because we're, we're commemorating what happened in the first Shabbos of creation. What happened in the first Shabbos of creation? Adam and Eve were created on Friday, mm-hmm. kind of like around now-ish. Um, and they sinned. They sinned on Friday. And they were going to be kicked out of Gan Eden, out of the Garden of Eden. 
But the Shabbos itself came and said to God, let them stay for Shabbos. You know, Jews are always so hospitable for Shabbos. You know, somebody knocks on your door five minutes before Shabbos. Ah, welcome, join us. It's Levitic. You have a guest for Shabbos. So this is what Gan Eden said is, I don't want him to go. Who's going who's gonna to eat challenge with me? Let them stay. And God said, sure, no problem. You can stay until after Shabbos. Now, while they were in the, so, so they're born by day. They're created by day. They're in sunlight. And then the night of Friday night, they don't experience darkness. Why? Because in the Garden of Eden, it's still that state of constant light. I mean, according to the version of Rashi, where it says that it was the seven days, that means throughout the world, there was always light. Mm. So there was no darkness until mm. the, the night of the eighth, mm. right? But we saw there was another version that said it was, it was before that. But in any case, in the Garden of Eden, certainly it was night. It was light during the first Friday night of creation. So it's only Saturday night, Motzi Shabbat, where A, they're getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which is can't be very pleasant, you know, leaving Eden. And part of that, part of that is they're now experiencing darkness for the first time. And there's two things there. First of all, that, that the collective Jewish, the collective soul of humanity and of the Jewish people experiences this 36 hours of light. 36 hours of light. It's a gematria of Ayeka, by the way. So it's 12 hours on Friday. I'm guessing they were born then at 6 a.m. 12 hours on Friday and the 24 hours of Shabbos. There's 36 hours of that we experience light. There's 36. This number 36 comes up in the name in the the tractates of the Mishnah. It comes up in the 36 flames of Hanukkah, right? If you count it, one plus two plus three, to get to eight, you're gonna get 36. Mm-hmm. And you, um, is that correct, Eric? That's correct. Okay, thank you. We have our math expert to confirm. Um, so the, the, as mentioned earlier, that the, the light of creation, the original light of creation, uh, we have, you know, we have, um, we have echoes of it in our in, in Torah, Torah study in the, in the 36 tractates and in the Hanukkah, for example. And we get back to that light in the time of Mashiach. The second thing is that God gives Adam the intuition to create light, fire, after Shabbat, and to commemorate the fire that Adam either was given by God or given the intuition to make by God, we every Friday, every every Shabbos, we kind of reliving, leaving the world out of complete of complete uh, light of illumination. We're leaving the world of illumination and going back into the world where there is not just physical darkness but also spiritual concealment. And so we light that candle. Uh, commemorating what Adam did, or what God gave the intuition to Adam, that we have the power, we have the strength, that even in the place of darkness, we're able to uh, bring light. That's what we do every Motzei Shabbat. So thank you all for joining us today. This has been an absolute wonderful start to uh, the new and exciting, um, New and exciting. It's actually pretty old and exciting. The old old Torah, a couple thousand years old, but still very exciting. Thank you for joining us. And we'll wish everyone a wonderful Shabbat and hope to see you again very soon. Thank you, Rabbi Marcus.